So, um, yeah, welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. That is 30 seconds of life outside my bedroom window. It's, it, I think it sums up everything right now, doesn't it? Oh, God, yes. Am I trying to be poetic? Possibly. Am I trying to be really relevant? And um, I don't know, do I sound like a six music DJ? Yes, possibly. Uh, I love six music, don't get me wrong. But um, yeah, that sense of um, profound craving for that profound moment does become a little nauseating. I guess what, I, what I'm trying to do there is like, we're all hearing it, aren't we? The sirens in the distance. But then in the foreground, we've got the bird song. It's the weirdest, the craziest thing. You've got the beautiful emergence of, of nature. Apparently nature is a thing. Apparently that's been happening for a while. Didn't know that. Up until now, I just, I don't know, I just thought cars were nature. But um, apparently not. So that, that that's a thing now, this nature thing. And... It's crazy because I've I've been out into the I would say countryside. I put that word countryside in kind of loose loose terms because really, twenty minutes in the car to walk the dogs where there aren't hundreds of people around us. Yeah, you know, twenty minutes. Fuck it. I'll, it's the countryside. It's extraordinary. It is so quiet and it's beautiful. Even when you come back here into Sydenham. It's um, it's so wonderfully quiet. But yeah, you do have those sirens in the background. And so you're balancing out that thing in your head. You've got this return to nature. You can, if you tune, if you are able to tune into that, the bird song and the, the therefore the lack of total noise pollution, it's amazing. But then you'll hear a siren. And you'll be reminded of just exactly and quite profoundly what this country's going through and this this world is going through. And it's, it's, yeah, well, you know, you know what it is by now. I don't think we need to underline how, what that's about. But um, I wonder, I wonder, I, I wonder how you've been doing because I've, I've been racking up these podcast chats a lot lately. I won't lie. And it's been a really great distraction from everything that's been going on. And uh, I've been working still, I'm still gardening. I don't know what you're doing. I suppose you're, I don't know, trying to just stay afloat, I should imagine. Keep keep on the old even keel. I'll tell you right now, my even keel keel, uh, involves working, going home, looking after Pearl, the adorable daughter, and taking her off my wife who is somehow managing to work from home and look at look after pal at the same time which is extraordinary i mean it is to me because there are you i don't know i don't know whether you're going through this as well you know i have no idea but for me maybe you know someone that that's in this situation you 
your job you have to kind of keep working your job is apparently important and therefore you work from home you you know blah 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 like i don't know you probably probably know quite a few people that are doing that but anyway but if you've got a kid it's it's off the hook you can't concentrate you can't turn your back on them for that long she's like 18 19 20 months old you know you can't do that so it's crazy so hats off to to her and hats off to you know if you're doing that then hats off to you if you know anybody that is you know i'm sure you understand the plight and then you've got the people that are self-isolating on their own uh, i've got a mate tristan who's self-isolating in a little village a town called godalming in surrey and he's he is taken to i think now he has learned every song in the world ever and is posting it on this little whatsapp group we have and has now taken up to another level and has been putting them on YouTube to like teaching people how to play songs. It's been done before, yes, but it's it's cute, it's lovely, it's keeping him going, you know. He's I think we're all learning to essentially evolve into survivalists. And whatever that is, i.e. whatever is inside us all. Or whatever it is something in there and it's keeping us going and it's coming out and it's really profoundly starting to like essentially help us survive and we didn't even know it was there i guess some people might even know whatever that creative output was that was lying there dormant is now there to to essentially save us because after you've read for five hours a day or watch your sixth film of the day or had you know various um self-loving moments um what else what else is there you know when you're on your own there's not it's not a lot so it's it is a good thing to be creative so i hope maybe there is a creative part of you that's coming out but um yeah this week this this podcast um episode john harris this is great. I mean, I, I, I would say that I, I recently I've got into why I started this podcast in the first place was to have conversations like the one you're about to hear. Now, I said that about Ian Dunt, the previous guest, which is exactly why I got into podcasting. So there's two in a row I've been lucky enough to have. And th- this one's fantastic. John, John Harris, who's essentially, without realising it, been in my life for a very very long time in terms of music and then into politics and we do explore those sort of moments where i go oh really you did that oh my god i love that you know it's it's good it's it's nice to have those moments in your life where you go oh that guy he did that oh my god i i loved what that guy did and now i'm chatting with him you know one of those moments is good and um yeah i think you'll enjoy it a lot but um, what's coming up? I don't know, really. I've got a chat with um, John Jonathan Agnew coming up, which is completely out of the blue and totally fantastic. And I wouldn't say the biggest moment of my life, but it's it's up there. Got to say, guys, it's only a yeah, look, you know, put into perspective. It's only a Skype conversation. It'll, I'm sure it's going to be great. But this guy, Jonathan Agnew, is essentially one of the voices of the summer. For those of you who don't know who Jonathan Agnew is, he's a um, like the voice of cricket, essentially. So I'm a massive cricket fan, and last summer was incredible for cricket. And 
to be honest, every summer is great for cricket. I, I love it. But to reach out to this guy and, and his um, agent and just and for them to be like, yeah, yeah, fine, yeah, let's do that, was, was a really, oh, my God moment. A big oh, my God moment. Because so much of, of getting guests on this show is about, you know, the ones that don't get on is about dealing with the rejection and, and some of the agents that are very rude and, and pretty uh, deliberately condescending and, and, and in some cases just really nasty but not the case this time around so I'm super excited to bring that to you and I'm hoping to set this up so it won't be like a uh, oh you've got to know sport you've got to know cricket to enjoy it it won't be like that believe me it's not going to be like that but um yeah and but just back to the conversation that I'm about you're about to hear we do we do talk a lot about music because John was a music journalist for a very long time and at the height of Britpop as well. So we talk about Britpop a wee bit. There's a funny little anecdote, anecdote about um, Nirvana, uh, Kurt Cobain. And yeah, we just talk a little bit about my obsession with status quo. Now I know that sounds weird. I know, not weird shit. It sounds shit. I know it sounds intimidating to those of you that are into non-status quo things but it shouldn't be intimidating to you you should be inspired you will be inspired i mean i I guarantee that after listening to this podcast you're going to be like one of those new joggers that you see you know you see them all the time now these joggers about up and down the streets you know the joggers with the shorts on and the head banners and well they're not john McEnroe, but they've got you know the joggers and then they've got the the new trainers that they got from uh, asos and and they'll just be jogging up and down your street or in the park you know the joggers and they'll just be going round and round in circles in the park uh doing the whole non-safe distancing and they'll just be coming up behind you you know the joggers you see them all the time the the john McEnroe thing and the new uh trainers from asos and they're just coming up behind you breathing heavily sucking in whatever you might or might not have and uh, just ignoring the safe distancing thing. But, you know, I'm not bitter. It doesn't make me angry at all. There is not a, a, a trace of anger or sarcasm in my voice, is there at all? You know, I don't I don't want to turn around to these people and go, fuck off. They, I mean, I'd love to, but that's just not in my nature. You know, I'm a lover. I'm not a hater. And for all those guys that and dolls that are jogging, uh, and are adhering to this sort of uh, safe distancing, respecting people's space, well done. Bring it on. But for those of you that, that aren't doing that, just maybe just fuck off. You know, just get in a garage somewhere and run around in a circle and just do that away from me and everybody else because you're a knob. And frankly, what do you think is going to happen to you? Are you wearing like some superhero um, invisible cloak that we are unaware of? Therefore, it means that you can jog really, really close to us. I don't think you are. I mean, maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you are. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that. You know, I mean, I've, I've been known to be wrong about a few things from time to time. And, and maybe there is an invisible cloak. But let's say if there isn't, just just maybe just think about it. Don't don't get so close to us. But um it's just worrying is all because I'm I'm glad you're you're staying fit. It's a wonderful thing. I'm I'm on the Peloton. It's great. It's indoors. It doesn't piss anyone off. 
Anna, Emma Lovewell, God, Jesus Christ. And uh, yeah, you know, Dennis Morton. These these two people are wonderful, keeping me fit and healthy. You don't need to know that, but I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing. But if you do see people being idiots, you know, with the jogging, what do you do? You, you, you just, do you say to them, fuck off? What are you doing? Get out of my space. All that kind of stuff. Or do you just, I haven't yet. But I'm getting building to it, you know, I'm building towards it. I, I was driving down our road the other day and I saw uh, a, a woman trying to avoid a jogger. So she was in the middle of the fucking road. And I was I, I flashed her to let her to go, uh, to get out of the way of the jogger. And I was like, what is going on? These joggers are got some sort of eye of the tiger music on, on in their head. Like they think they are Rocky Balboa. Therefore, they are immune to disease. <laughs> Again, maybe they are. Unlikely, unlikely, I would say. But why are they? They're putting on the headphones. They're getting the montage thing. You know what are they doing? Saving the planet. I, ugh, great, stay fit, fantastic. But do it, 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 it with respect. How hard is that? For fuck's sake! Every time I see a jogger that jogs around a person, respecting the safe distancing, I give them a toot when I'm driving. I give them a. I do. I just, why not? I mean, they might think I'm being an arsehole. There's every chance they might think. That. But I, I just think, let's toot the joggers that give the self-respect. Let's clap the fucking joggers. There goes a fucking siren. It's so weird to be sat here doing this. It's so weird. In the middle of this horror, nine... 181 people died in the last 24, 24 hours. It's just, you got to spare a thought, thought for all those families. And, and I don't even know, I'm I'm so entrenched in my own fear that I, I don't know how to even relate to those people. that are, I, I can relate, I can empathise, of course I can. I mean, fuck, my dad died of meningitis when I was 22. He died within six weeks of getting it, you know. I can completely empathise, but... This is just, it's on. A, it's like a tidal wave every fucking day. And I, I'm, I'm essentially just dodging the news, dipping in, trying to manage my own anxiety. I think that's what we're all doing really, isn't it? And I, I hope you're doing well at that. You know, I hope you're doing a good job at managing your anxiety and your expectations of when lockdown's going to, you know, be, um, you know, lifted or when there's, Jesus, you know, when a vaccine is created, I hope you're managing that well because, you know, it could be a long time, not not in a negative sense, just a reality check. And I don't think that's bad. I don't think it's bad to just go, look, these are the facts. Could be a long time. What's wonderful? In my head earlier, I've, I had a wisteria growing up the... Um, the side of our, my our house, and it's been there for a couple of years, maybe a year and a half, two years, and I gave it a really hard prune this this winter. I'm like, you don't fucking flower this summer. I'm gonna kick you out. That's it. I probably wouldn't. I don't have the heart to do that. You know, I'd probably give it to a charity shop. You can't give plants to a charity shop. Maybe you can, but anyway. Um, so it start. I gave it a hard prune, and it has blossomed like you would not believe we are talking 40 flower heads at least on this it's a small wisteria as well it is stunning do you know what i'm doing tomorrow i'm going to meditate in front of that fucking thing i don't know what i don't know how to meditate but i'm going to learn i'm going to put on some music probably put on the old six music i know i did 
deride of them earlier slightly. Mark Radcliffe's a genius, you know, fine. Stuart McConey, brilliant. And I'm just going to chill out and I'm going to look at it. I'm going to look, I'm going to look at the flower heads. I'm going to think about the scent. I'm, I'm going to think about the beautiful, wondrous time it's taken for that that plant to creep up around the, the shape of the window. I'm going to think about it. And I think if you can do that, do, not necessarily come around mine, um, although you're welcome, obviously, safe, safe distancing. Um, but uh, if you've got something in your garden, uh, do it. Do it. And do you know what? You don't even fucking screw the plants. You listen to the goddamn birds. They're everywhere. Apparently. I Like I said, heard about these bird things. They're, they're, they're new. They're new to me. They're new to you. They're new to everyone. It used to be planes. I thought planes were birds. Weird that. But, um, and it's good, it's good for us all to just get back to nature. And like I said earlier, to do, it is hard to balance the two. It is hard because when you find some sort of inner peace, it's like, then you snap back into to some form of reality. But I, I feel, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm getting slightly better now. You know, the, the, when you wake up and it hits you a bit, it's the, the hit isn't quite as hard anymore. And and if it is for you, I'm really sorry that it's still difficult because it, it it's a, it's different for everyone, you know. But I am fundamentally sorry if you're not reaching a place of accept you know acceptance, because I suppose that's what this really is, isn't it? It's just about accepting our lot. And for the moment, it it does appear that it, it will be like this for a while. But I, d I don't see why that has to be a true negative. You know, I don't see why you can't turn that to your to your advantage and and become a stronger person, but in a different way that you didn't know was available, was in you, you know. And I think that's an opportunity. It requires a lot of strength. I do fucking understand that. It's not just a question of going, oh, you know what, I'm in lockdown, I'm just going to become... I'm going to become like this fucking educated um, hurricane, like in um, The Hurricane with um, Denzel Washington. I'm just going to get, you know, I'm just going to read all the books and become super intelligent and just save the world. Obviously not. I think what it's about is about finding some kind of inner acceptance and, and peace and, and growing from that. I mean, why not? Why not? I mean, you've got all the time in the goddamn world. But yeah, if you want to reach out and talk to me, you can always email me um, at thelimehousepodcast at gmail.com and we can just have a chat. If you're finding life hard at the moment, which I'm, I'm sure you are. Um, but yeah, it would be good to hear from you. It's been a while. It's been a long while since I gave that email address out. I just couldn't be bothered. But I think now it's sort of, if you do have, you want to chat, Go for it. The Limehouse Podcast at gmail.com. But yeah, enjoy this conversation. It's good fun. It really is. It's high energy. It's we talk about the Ramones. We talk about stakes quo. What what more do you want in life? Probably a little bit more than that. Anyway, you look after yourself. I will see you hopefully quite soon. And hang in there. Listen to the birds and look at the flowers grow. It's going to be okay. And of course, if you do want a distraction or something slightly different in your life, 
you can always check out my short film on my website, which is somedaysardiamonds.co.uk. Just like the Tom Betty song, somedaysardiamonds.co.uk. And there's my short film on there. Why not? Why not give it a look? Slash watch. Rock on. Stay safe. I love you. Bye. But um, yeah, how are you doing under all this um, COVID craziness? Well, it's all right. We've got a lot on. We're doing a film series, which doesn't involve leaving the house, but um, yeah. we're getting lots and lots of video from I've all seen, over the place. Yeah. Anywhere but Westminster, and in, yeah. Yeah, and interviewing people as well on Google Hangout and things. And it's a lot of work. So I wrote, I wrote a column today. You know, I'm not short of things to do. Yeah. And my kids are here, so I've got to um, do a bit of homeschooling and all that. So it's quite a lot on, really. How are you coping? You're in London. Though, well, so yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in London. Really. Mate, well, to be honest with you, um, you, you started your Anywhere But Westminster recently with talking to your um, your producer who lives in Broccoli. So I'm in Sydenham, which in, is... Okay. Which is just That's right on the Kent borders, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely beautiful as well. Like We've, we've, we've been... Um, up to a couple of months ago, we've been exploring the local Kent countryside, and it's it's just beautiful, really. Like genuinely. And you, you can st- can you still do that now? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, like the the thing is, to be absolutely honest, we take twenty minutes in the car to the countryside to well, you know, countryside in inverted commas. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, and it's safer to walk there than it is to walk in at my local park, you know, because it's it's, it's like a slalom in my local park. You know, like dodging the dog walkers. Well, not dog if you're walkers, that close, dog. you know. Yeah. Unless you've got overzealous police. I know. And we go, we go walking every weekend twice now. I mean, we did anyway, but Saturday and Sunday now, whereas we just used to go Sunday, and you can walk out of my house and yeah. be in open country in ten minutes. Well, so mate, that, right. that's the West Country. Froome is Froome's beautiful. My uncle lives in Froome actually as well. Um, so you've got <laughs> you've got the sandwich of broccoli and Froome. So yeah, yeah, but they both bring things. We'll probably talk about this anyway. Go on, let's crack on. Yeah, no, I'm recording anyway. I don't really mind. Oh, are you? You're just e- okay. easing into. Are you, yeah, we're doing one of those. We're Do, just easing in. I know, I know. It's just like an you know, American style. That's uh, all right. Whatever. But, um, but I'm on the record now. I, I, that's good to know. You're on the record. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I just. It's funny because you, I've, you know, you wouldn't know, but I've, I've obviously been following your your career for a very very long time, and your sort of like your transition from I don't know, kind of like the Mark Beaumont of um, my generation. Or, I don't know. If you probably know Mark quite well. I don't know whether that's a slight. I don't know Mark that well. I know I, I, I'm a, I'm an acquaintance of Mark, so I don't know him. That yeah, um, and those days, those 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 good old days of of Britpop and what have you. Um, yeah. Fucking hell! I mean. I was, I was just like pondering a couple of days ago. I haven't spoke. I've never spoken to. I mean, I've written um, before, like for music magazines and stuff. Obviously, no, nowhere near your level. But it it did dawn on me. Like, when did music really like start like being the cornerstone of my life? Every like my waking thought and and passion. And it's like I was probably about eight nine years old when I first my dad first played me Jimi Hendrix um, live at the Isle of Wight Festival. Yeah, and it was um, Johnny Be Good, and I still remember the feedback and that feeling of like, what is that? And I don't know, just I just I wonder what what that might have been for you, like your first that first moment of like. I, I, I have a very easy answer to that, which is that, um, and I still sort of remember it. It's like a very early memory, but I was five years old, I think. Yeah, and um, I was 
left in the care of one of my mum's friends and to shut me up, I think, she put on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles, Sweet. which had um, the cutouts with it. And um, it seems like a strange thing to do now, although there were so many copies of that record made, it, it didn't really, you know, represent anything awful. So I cut yeah. the cutouts out and you had a little cardboard moustache you could sort of poke up your nose and hold in place. <laughs> so I did all that. Yeah. And my one memory of it is... Um, at the start of side two, the George Harrison Indian track "Within You, Without You," and I remember thinking, "Wow, this is this is really interesting." Yeah, yeah. And, then, and between that and then sort of staring at the record sleeve, because obviously there's a lot to look at. Yeah. And quite about two, three years after that, I was quite a sort of strange child. I uh, I became a sort of Beatles obsessive. Brilliant. And used to borrow their records from the library. Yeah. And um, just. Re- there weren't loads of books about them then. There were one or two. Yeah. So I remember ordering those from the library. And that sort of stayed with me ever since. You know, I've never had a phase of my life when I wasn't listening to the Beatles. So how did they inform you at such a young age? Like, in terms of like going forward, because like, I know exactly what you mean by that. I mean, I, I um, geez, my, <laughs> mine wasn't the Beatles. Mine was um, status quo. Um, wow. I, yeah. Yeah, that's very generous of you. But you're probably. I tell you a few stories about them. No, I've written about stages. Well, like honestly, like I, I've seen some of the. I, I like to think I've seen some of the best bands from like the, you know, the Cribs all the way up to Springsteen, and I still think Quo are one of the greatest live bands. Oh yeah, yeah. In the world. Yeah, certainly were. Yeah, well, not. See, the thing is, that when you're when you're really little, um. Pop music sort of hits you without any mediation, so you have yeah. no idea about who's cool and who's not, <laughs> yeah. and um, who's doing what. You know, you probably don't even know what a guitar and a bass guitar and all that are. It's it's yeah. sound, and if it's got words with it, you'll hear some of them. Yeah, there's a book just come out by um, Pete Perfides, the music writer, about a sort of memoir of childhood called Broken Greek. He's really good on this mm-hmm. about the fact that you that your imagination is is so sort of um, I don't know what the word is, powerful really, at, at that stage of your life. And I'm talking when you're sort of five upwards. Yeah. That you sort of project yourself into the songs and they become so sort of replete with meaning. It's amazing. Yeah. And in his book, there are lots of records from, he's exactly the same age as me, and there are lots of records from around that time that he writes about having that quality, like When I Need You by Leo Sayer. Uh-huh. And all of those ABBA singles, like Knowing Me, Knowing oh. You is a good example. Yeah, which is about which is about divorce, and I remember hearing it, and I must only have been six or seven, and thinking this is heavy stuff, you know. Really, and it, really, yeah, totally, totally. and it is heavy. It's really heavy stuff in these dark and empty rooms. Children will play. Love is more than emptiness, or whatever the words are. Nothing the same. It's amazing stuff, and um, God. that was great. You know, it's yeah. the perfect age to absorb things, and that that sort of. I mean, it's still carrying on to some extent now, but it it, it that period of my life from sort of five through to probably 18 and 19 I was just soaking up as much as I could although Mm. the world was very different then and in order to find anything musically although the local library helped it was 25p to get an LP out for two weeks and tape it but um it wasn't like you could go on Spotify and hear the whole world you know you had to go to the shop and on a Saturday with your one pound and buy a seven inch single right and hope that it was good, and more to the point, hope that both sides of it were good. Right, yeah, yeah. Because I remember buying 99, this is a much later, I remember buying 1999 by Prince, and the B-side is How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore, and I didn't think it was very good, and I felt sick with 
despondent to you like oh god i've wasted my money here oh my god i know, do you know so you really had to live with music because there wasn't much of it around you yeah know? so i mean like this the seed is i mean if you're picking up on lyrics and at such a young level i guess to it, some extent yeah i mean you know there's not really much subtext subtext in status quo but um I know, well, I don't know, you know. Living, I mean, you're being hard on living on an island. Were you going to mention? I was going to say living on an island is one of my favorites. Living on an island's a great song. Yeah, yeah. And when when Rick died, I was, I was, yeah, I was pretty devastated. Wow, you're quite hardcore, aren't you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I just, I went mad for them, mate. It was like I was. I remember the first stadium gig I ever went to, or indoor arena, was um, Wembley Wembley Arena, and um, this American band called Firehouse was supporting. And I remember being terrified, absolutely fucking terrified by the volume, the sheer volume of it. And once I'd sat down and, you know, the support panel come off and then Quo came on, that oh, like almost like um, religious aspect, church-like aspect of everyone coming together and singing for an hour and a half nonstop every single song. And which, which, this wasn't the classic lineup of Quo, presumably. We're in the. Um, this is Jeff Rich on drums. Jeff um, Rich, yeah, John Rhino Edwards and yeah, all that. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, God, it's, it's, it's great to talk to someone who actually knows their shit about music. I know that sounds ridiculous, but we've never had it. I wrote about Quo. I did. Um, yeah. I've just um, unearthed this piece because um, someone asked me to send it to them. And um, yeah, I did this career retrospective of Quo from Mojo. This is about 20 years ago, 2001. Oh, I probably read that. And I worked really hard on it. Like, I, I went sort of on the road with Quo for a couple of dates in Liverpool and Manchester, I think. And um, I, went to fi- I went to find John Cochran, the first drummer. Yeah, yeah. And he was playing with this Quo tribute band in Flandrin Dodwells on a Saturday night. And yeah. the bass player by this point, Alain Lancaster, was in Australia. And I had to call him in the middle of the night. And he was... Brilliant. Full of bile about Francis Rossi. Oh and, God, I bet he's not. And I was. It was not. It was a nice piece to do because I didn't know much. Of it it was hatched drunkenly after a Bob Dylan concert. Like I'll write about the quo, <laughs> and I didn't really know much about him. So I was learning as I wrote it, which is the best way to write about anything. Really. Oh, I love that. I absolutely. And now love I can. That. I can tell you loads about quo, but but I didn't know hardly. I mean, I knew the singles and twelve gold bars and all yeah. that before I started doing it. But um, it was a lovely way to learn about them. It, yeah. and I feel very fond of them, and they're great records. Down, down's brilliant, and yeah, it's brilliant. Caroline's, you know, that sort of peak period. Through a rocking all over the world, really, they're great. Mojo had this weird theory; they were the British Ramones, and I think there's some truth in that. Well, they did a split. Mojo did a split on the Ramones and Quo, and I remember that years ago. And I thought, that's my story. It was a denim. It oh was my a god, denim was that cover yours? And it had a, yeah, oh, and it had a status quo. It had a status brilliant. quo patch on the cover. Oh my god, that's so fucking mental. That's and that circle. was only in there. Uh, you have to be sort of quite. I don't know what the word is, really. I was thinking, God, this is really going to challenge the readers, isn't it? The, right. the idea of Quo as the British or a moan. Yeah. But there's some... I mean, because it's the same thing over and over right. again. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. But there were solos um, and they... But I don't know, because they, they both went a bit wonky in the 80s, I guess. Yeah, that's um, true, too. You know, but I remember... Do you know what, John? It's so funny, because I can see that album, the um, front of that magazine that in my in my head. like that, that um, And I reckon I've probably still got that down in my grands in storage. It's a lovely, lovely thing because I mean, this applies to Mojo and Q magazine, both of which I write for. But Mojo um, really prides itself on its layouts and all yeah. that, and um, and the picture research and all that stuff. And I mean, to have twelve pages about status quo, 
It's just brilliant. You know? Oh god, you know it's what? Really nice. I'm going to try and dig that out and and reread that because that's fucking brilliant. That's really that's tickled me. That's they were just wrong. superb anecdotes. Yeah, oh, they're all they're just all though. of it is real. All of it. I mean, so, sometimes unintentionally, but it's really, really funny. Yeah. Oh. There's this brilliant bit at the end where Francis Rossi goes for a, a weekend away with his wife in Amsterdam, and when he comes back through customs, they search him. Yeah. And he's pretty much strip searched. And just at the point that they're doing the most sort of intimate stage of the strip search, the guy says, oh, I'm coming to see you on Saturday with the girls from Debenhams. She's just magnificent. Oh, my God. That is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> that is brilliant. But the best, I think the best one, and we'll stop talking quite soon, I promise. But we're not about the best one, but I was thinking about this the other day on a walk. God knows why this came into my head, but they, it was one of their um, off-the-record books. They were just like in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And I used to read it cover to cover, and my mum and dad clearly did not vet this book because jesus christ some of the decadence is unbelievable but there's one one particular story where they both got this spray that they could spray on their dicks to make them hard for like hours and they said wow you know after the first five ten minutes it was amazing brilliant and then literally Parfit had a fucking panic attack because his dick wouldn't go down. That's very quirky. It always has this slight sort of carry on esque yeah. aspect. Always. <laughs> well, that's what they, they sort of met in Butlins, didn't they? So, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a, quite a lot of pathos, but even more bathos. They're, <laughs> they're very good at the punchline, definitely. So, when when did it, like, for you, when did the step in? Was it a very gradual? I can imagine it was a, a gradual step into music journalism, what, into, was it? Um, what, into music journalism? Yeah. Uh, when I was, um, when I was 18, I sat my A-levels and I got better A-level results than I'd been predicted to get, I think. And they told me I ought to apply to go to Oxford University. Right. Which I'd already done, already done once and got rejected. And, um, so I, it was a hell of a gamble to take, which caused me a lot of anxiety, but nonetheless... Um, it worked out, but it meant I had this spare year. And I, in retrospect, I should have gone to Australia, whatever people do, but I didn't. Right, okay. And um, I went to see Happy Mondays play at the Hacienda in Manchester, where I was used to going. And um, I wrote an uns- what they call an unsolicited review of that concert and sent it to Sounds, which was a weekly music paper at the time, like the, just like the NME, really, or Melody Maker, yeah. there were three of them. And I didn't hear anything for three or four months. And by the time I got to university, I then got a message saying, well, you needed to call this guy, Sean Phillips. And so I phoned him up and I started getting freelance work at Sound. So I was 19 then. And, um, and I just was writing a couple, you know, a review or two a week. And then yeah. I started reviewing albums. And I was writing features by the time. I was sort of 20, 21. So and, how, um, how would you grade your, your writing back then? Like, oh, it's, well, it's what they call juvenile, isn't it? It's not yeah. some of it's okay. Yeah. My, I mean, you know, I reviewed the Manic Street Preachers oh, the around the time of their first single on Heavenly Records, and I wrote that on an Amstrad computer, one of those ones that had like luminous green writing on the screen. It wasn't mine; it belonged to someone else. That's how long ago this was, That's and um, it sort of poured out. And it's you know, it's all right. It's sort of passionate reasonably elegant in places yeah you know but that's like everyone the great thing about the music press and i'm not i'm hardly alone in this i mean it applies to much greater talents than me julie birchill and tony parsons and tim lott worked for sounds for a while the novelist yeah, yeah. is is it teaching it taught me how to write and i was taught how to write features and really how to interview people and also about how 
publications worked in terms of layout and production and all the rest of it. And it was a complete meritocracy. All of it. Sounds was. Yeah. Uh, the enemy was where I went after that. You know, they, they, they were. You just you either had it or you didn't. And nobody ever asked me where I went to university or what my dad did for a living or any of that. Yeah. And it was a very diverse, reasonably diverse. I mean, there should have been more women in retrospect. But, it, you know, I met a lot of really interesting, quite eccentric, amazing people, some of whom I remain friends with. And it was a lovely, lovely thing. And it's a shame it's not there anymore because, you know, I think it's a, better, it's a better way of learning who you are than reviewing the papers on Sky TV. Yeah. Do you, do you know what? I, I, <laughs> you're absolutely spot on. The, the death of the... The the enemy, not the death of the enemy, but the, to my to my in my mind, it's died. Like I, it doesn't. It's not really there anymore. Yeah, it, it's not. And I've I started thinking about um, maybe it's because I had you, you in my mind to, just chatting with you. But I did start thinking about the Melody Maker. I've got like the last copy of Melody Maker, and um, it was massive, wasn't it? Like you look back at you look back at them now, like the size of the enemy, like physically, and the Melody Maker. They were huge. Print, but it was full of stuff, you know. I mean, yeah. the, the other thing it lent it lent one's life was this amazing thing where by every Wednesday you could go to the newsagent shop. How old are you, incidentally? I'm 38. Okay, so you go. You'll just about remember this. You could go to the the newsagent shop on a Wednesday morning, or if you lived in London, they would come out on a Tuesday lunchtime, and you just have all this stuff to read. Yeah. And somehow it was almost like the music industry had to rise to the challenge of putting out enough stuff for these three or four, if you include Record Mirror, these four publications to fill their pages with. Yeah. And you also had to be good at being interviewed. It 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 created a certain sort of pop star. Yeah, absolutely. And because like- it was no good just being boring. You know, if you wanted the cover of one of these papers, you had to have something to say. I mean, a classic. I mean, you know, let's not get into where he's gone lately, but. Morrissey is the obvious example of that. It was just um, Paul Weller actually, who hasn't gone anywhere weird. Um, yeah, yeah. They were just these people who who realised they had this responsibility not just to make amazing music, but to have something to say. God, yeah. I mean, that... and it um, and it was a. I'm not, I'm not saying musicians now don't have something to say, but it, it was just a, for as long as it lasted, it was just a great culture, and a lot of it was political with a at least with a small P, which yeah. sort of accounts for where I subsequently went personally. And I'm not the only one. Yeah, no, of course. But I mean, it's also celebrated, wasn't it? That that in, in te- in intellectual side of, of pop, basically. You know, whereas nowadays, you, I mean, you, I don't want to say nowadays because it does put me in that. Oh, yeah, music. I don't quite buy that, though. I mean, in the sense that there are perfectly, you know, Pitchfork's pretty good. There's um there's a monthly I think music publication that I subscribe to called Loud and Quiet, which yeah. a guy called Stuart Stubbs edits, which is really good, and and does the job of a, a very similar to what a music weekly used to do. There's a publication which is a bit more dance and sort of electronic orientated called Crack, which is pretty good. Yeah, you know the world isn't devoid of those things. No, of course, but not, it's just right. it's just that the world in which there were just three of them, and therefore everyone had to get involved and. Yeah. And you buy them even if you hated them. I mean, that was half the point was to buy the enemy and say, fucking enemy, fucking enemy. Oh, my God. I, I just, I, it, it just blows my mind because, I, you know, you say when, it's so funny what you forget. I forgot just like until you said it, like, like queuing, not queuing up, but going into the offy in Guildford, my hometown and getting the. Oh, you're from Guildford, right. Yeah. And, and getting the, um, a copy of the enemy. And you know when music came back around after the new metal scene and yeah, yeah. in the early noughties, you just had the, the strokes period. Oh my god, just some of the yeah, that was the bands. sort of last stand of a lot of what we're talking about. Exactly, really. mate. And and you know, and I I I went to is it Ding yeah Dingwalls to see 
um, I think it was the Von Bondis, and there was a stage invasion, and you know all the you know the Noel Gallagher people and all the kind of James Dean Bradfield people were there. And there was a stage invasion, and I got on stage, and uh, like I don't know, a few days later, picked up the enemy, open it up, and there I am. Except oh, that's good. it's not me; it's my fucking back and my tweed jacket. Even then, that's that's still pretty good. It is, isn't it, mate? Because I couldn't. I couldn't believe I've literally I've reached the pinnacle. There is no, it's all downhill from here. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's always good. Is that when I, I um I wrote a letter to the enemy when I was sixteen and um it got in and I you know and it, I knew to get in you had to keep it short. It was only about two sentences long. Yeah. And the and the infamous legendary Stephen Wells ran it and then wrote wrote this snarky reply at the bottom and I just thought I'd arrived. You know I yeah. thought that was it. Brilliant. So it was a lovely, love. It was a lovely, lovely thing. It's. I mean, it's marked so many people's lives, either reading for it or writing for it or being in it. It's. It's, it's a shame it's not there anymore. Uh, it's really sad. Um, and if we had longer, man, I'd love to like pick your brains so much more. I'll come back and I'll come back and do it. Yeah, that would be good. That'd be great. I mean, it's it's it is a it's not forgotten. Obviously, didn't Britpop and that whole early, you know, that I don't know what you call it, like second Britpop with. The likes of the cribs and what have you was 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 part of my ride. I was I was stuck in boarding school for Britpop, um, so it, I still got it, but I didn't get it like as some people. I really like the bit before. I like the um, the sort of although I wasn't really into Acid House at the time, but the sort of Stone Roses, Happy Mondays. Yeah, you did. You do that documentary um, that it was uh, that that they were about um, oh, that park or that island where. Stone no, I no, I went to that concert, the okay. famous Stone Roses. Spike. I did something. There was someone was after me, interviewing me about that the other day. I went to Spike Island that's as, a, as yeah. a paying as a paying punter. Yeah, and and they said that that's the sort of one that changed. changed it was everything. pretty awful, but it's, it's it, despite its awfulness, it was very badly organised. <laughs> but it's one of those things that you you kind of if you say it to someone. I met Kurt Cobain once as well. They're the two that can make people go. <gasps> oh my you know, god! Was I was at Spike Island? Yeah. <gasps> Where did you I meet met Kurt? Kurt Cobain? <gasps> After the word, do you remember there was a show oh god, on Friday course. night yeah, on, on yeah, Channel yeah. Four Telly, god, uh, which was they call it post pub TV. You had to be drunk to watch it, basically. Yeah, and um, yeah. Nirvana played "Smells Like Teen Spirit" on it, yeah. and um, there was a little drink afterwards, and. It was uh, it was the most useless exchange. We were talking. I was talking to someone about the farm, the band from Liverpool, and he, and Kurt Cobain looked up and went, "Who are they?" Yeah. And Keith Cameron, this journalist I was with, said, "Oh, they're from Liverpool. They're like a John Peel band." And he went, "Oh, okay." And that was my meeting with Kurt Cobain. That's brilliant, mate. That is solid, solid gold. I love there it. There you go. Yeah, I, I, I'll take that one with me. Well, you know, I won't be able to beat that. No one else will be, mate. I love it. Absolutely fantastic. So, if you. I, what, so you said earlier that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of politics in music. Yeah. I suppose, you know, just off the top of my head, maybe like, you know, the Manics or what have you. Um, yeah, yeah. Was it like a, were you not done, but was there a, a part of you just read, right, I'm a bit, I'm a bit over this sort of thing now or I want to explore. No, I sort of carried on right there, but I carried yeah. on. Even, I was, I was sort of in, I was in charge of Select Magazine Select, when I was 20, wow. 26 Till when I was twenty nine or thereabouts, and um, Jesus, you were twenty six. You were in charge of a magazine. The editor of the magazine. I mean, they are very sort of small editorial teams, but they were. Yeah. It was a great group of people I worked with, and um, and then Britpop finished, and um, I started writing. I sort of put feelers out, and then started writing 
the independent. Mm-hmm. And I was still writing about music. And I, because I, I wrote about the, I was thinking about this the other day. I wrote about the strokes and yeah. the white stripes and all that. So you'd it wasn't want like to, I was, wouldn't you? Even if you weren't like in music, you'd just. And they weren't that to. interesting in an interview, really, the strokes. Julian Casablanca's bless him. He didn't have that much to say. But um, Too cool for school, man. He was a bit too cool for school. Uh, uh, and I sort of gradually. I'd want, you know, I'd wanted to write about politics for it because I had a political upbringing and I'd been in the Labour Party and that, you know, my sort of academic background is is about is to do with politics mostly. Yeah. So I'd wanted to to do it, and um, it just gradually started entering the picture as I was able to write more and more for the Independent, yeah. and um, and then quite soon after that, I wrote a book about Britpop called The Last Party. Yeah, yeah. Which had this sort of. Um, element running through it about Tony Blair and him befriending musicians and the the sort of rise of new labor and so on. Yeah. And so quite sort of, it wasn't intentional really, but quite gracefully that sort of allowed me to start to tr- understand like how you wrote in a political vocabulary. And then in 2004, which is not that long after that Britpop came, Britpop book came out. Yeah. By that point I was, although I'd, I'd, um, like everyone, I've been very pleased at the end of 18 years of Tory rule and all that in 1997. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I, cause I, it's a very cliched thing to do, but I got very disillusioned with new labor because of Iraq and yeah, I think, yeah, what they were doing policy wise, yeah. PFI and privatizing elements of the school system and all that. And so, um, I wrote this book called, so now who do we vote for? Which was like a sort of, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek sort of guide right, okay, yeah, for yeah. people who didn't want to vote Labour anymore, where I was sort of went round interviewing various politicians. Quite a motley crew looking back. It wasn't intentional, but yeah. Hazel Blears and Mark Oaten, who ended up leaving the Lib Dems in a sort of cloud of scan- minor scandal. George Galloway is in that book as well. God, Galloway, bloody hell. And... Um, that was all right. It was a sort of modest success, and it got noticed that I was sort of this person who, before Twitter and all the rest of it, so I didn't become that sort of notorious. But if you didn't want to vote Labour anymore for a brief period, that was the sort of set text, I suppose, and that got noticed at the Guardian. And then quite soon after that, they, they sort of took me on as a contracted writer, and that's yeah. I do very different stuff now from what I did then, but um, that was really the start of my time as a political journalist so i've been at it 15 years now yeah i mean but i mean because i i started this podcast three years ago and i i I guess like you know i've i did a lot of did a lot of writing for about four or five years for music and um little but little local rags you know and um and i was really lucky to to interview some really really great bands but then that doesn't stop you know you don't just go oh well i'm gonna stop being creative you know it keeps going and then when I start this podcast you know I, I started you know interviewing people who'd been in it for fucking decades in politics and I was just like this total imposter and definitely felt like that but um, you know, everyone is yeah. everyone is and the point is that it's better to what I discovered right in that book and to some extent are still true now I don't know whether you know the word imposter very often is people being hard on themselves yeah. and the best way to write about politics, if you can, is at least partially as an outsider, you know, because that's the way most people see politics. Yeah, yeah. And lobby correspondents and all that do an essential job. So I'm not on some big sort of anti-lobby rant here at all. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, most people see politics as being something quite odd. Yeah. And um, 
something that very often disappoints them yeah. and something which leaves a gap between the sort of ritual of itself and their own lives, you know. And so to write about it as an outsider and probably from time to time have sort of imposter syndrome thoughts, I would say it means you're usually doing it. You're probably doing the right thing. Because yeah, personally, I don't want to, you know, horses for courses and all that, but I don't really want to have to wear a suit all the time. Yeah. And go and listen to lobby briefings, you know. There are probably more constructive ways to spend your life, you know. Yeah, damn right. But I mean, because anyone listening to this is going to know fully about the um, Anywhere But Westminster series. And I, I've yeah. been following that for about five or six, maybe years. But I say that could be longer. Like, I, it's, my memory is absolutely horrific. But That's all right. I, I, that's all right. If you've been following it that long, you have my, you have my uh, <laughs> support and sympathy. I mean, for... For me, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because you've got the recent Brexit history and you going up and down the country, left, right and centre. Yeah. And basically people, like you said, like people just not getting politics, being themselves a little feel like you know they're impost you know they're imposters they're, they're getting involved in something that is beyond them and that's the frustration. There's so many other different factors around Brexit, obviously. But like yeah, yeah. where we are where we are with Brexit anywhere with Westminster and where we are with COVID anywhere but Westminster yeah has it because I know you, obviously you're not able to go up and down the country and you're doing it from your home at the moment <laughs> but what can't, the, not allowed yeah exactly but what the did you ever stop and go fucking hell like six months ago I was talking to people who were angry pissed off about the European Union now yeah. people I'm talking to people who are fucking terrified you know yeah it's sort of in a in a very strange way um, although that period, the three years of sort of post-referendum hurly-burly, which sort of, I thought, reached its conclusion with the general election last year. I mean, that was like the full stop, you know. Yeah. When we when we exited the final film, which is done on election night, which was sort of following what happened to the Labour Party, which is what, you know, even sort of semi-unconsciously, most of those films, to a lesser or greater extent, were about the demise of the Labour Party's bond with its traditional voters. I mean, that's sort of our favourite theme. Right, yeah. And um, that we've been exploring that for nine or ten years doing these films, and that seemed to reach a, a conclusion with how badly the Labour Party lost that election and the mm. fact that, you know, there were people and places that we'd been talking to for years and years and years that were central to all that. So we were always of the opinion that it was the right thing to be in Stoke-on-Trent and Mansfield and... Uh, you know, the post-industrial northeast and whatever, and then suddenly all those places didn't vote, didn't elect Labour MPs and, and very incongruously are Tory MPs. So that was the end of that story. Yeah. Now, December 2019 seems like 100 years ago now God, yeah. because we're living in such strange, unprecedented circumstances. But having said that, you know, the world has become a very, very strange place that keeps doing unexpected things. Mm. And so I, in a weird way, I still feel that I'm sort of living in the same moment because, you know, we've all read a thousand op-ed pieces about this, that the way that, our, that a lot of people's understanding of the coronavirus is framed is all about globalization and, and the, you know, the lack of international cooperation and Donald Trump is front and center yeah. and Boris Johnson is the prime minister and all the rest of it. So somehow to me, I'd never have seen this coming. And it's awful, but it somehow feels like the reality that I've been dealing with for three or four years being extended really to the point of, of, of it being very, very surreal and discomforting. But um, 
in its own sort of strange way, it makes sense. The other thing is what it's really bringing to the surface is is the scale of inequality in this country. How many people live very, very sort of fragile, unappreciated, low-paid lives? Christ. And how we can't yeah. carry on like this, right? Now, yeah. that's something that I'm not alone in this. Lots of us have been covering for many, many years. So, again, you know, there are th lines you can draw between the political reality of the last five or ten years and, for all its oddness, what's happening now. Yeah. So I'm not that – I'm weirded out by all sorts of things within this. I mean, the very fact that no one can leave the house and all these little minor sort of um, anthropological things that we have to do now. Like whenever yeah. I see someone walking towards me in the street, we both have to go out into the middle of the road yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. stuff, you know. But at the same time, there are sort of enough strands within it that I recognise. Yeah. I just – it's just funny because I – I mean – I don't, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not necessarily despondent. I think I had a, I had a minor sort of panic attack about it maybe a couple of weeks ago when the lockdown was first brought in. Um, yeah, you know, I think everyone kind of did, but I know it's for the greater good and it isn't some part of some freaky government crackdown and mad conspiracy theorists that think that, you know, this is an opportunity for government to um, just shut everything down. Um, right. I mean... Obviously, there are elements in that, but there's also what I suppose what we're all kind of hoping for to get out of this is is what you touched on, you know, the recognition for the social worker, the nurses, the, yeah. the doctors and what have you. And um, I did I, I chatted with with Ian Dunt just the other day about this. And and um, I mean, is it hopeful in your opinion, traveling up and down the fucking country, talking to people and and, you know, rubbing shoulders with everyone from freaking, I don't know. You know, Nigel Farage to... to I've met him that often. Yeah, anyway, go yeah. on. Do you think that this will... Do you think there's a change going to come? Do you think it's... It... Oh, no, I honestly don't know. I mean, I would like to think so. Yeah. And the, the sort of... um, What's the word? The reasons why this, uh, this country... And we're not alone in this. Um, lots, of, lots of places ought to quite sizably change and begin to get to grips with insecurity and inequality and people's distance from power and all the things that people like me rattle on. They're, they're very vivid in this moment, right? So, you know, only today I've had a long conversation with someone who runs a food bank who's running out of food. I had another conversation with um, somebody who gives um, debt and financial advice to people who are really struggling in London and their caseloads have doubled. And all of that tells you that people were in a, a lot of people were in a very fragile state anyway going into this, and what this has done is it's taken their fragility and vulnerability to to the end, to the next level. And the question then is, well, why were people that fragile to start with, right? So in that sense, there's a rational case as and when we emerge from this, however that happens, for dealing with those things. But it doesn't mean it'll necessarily happen. I mean, my colleague Martin Kettle is one of the most thoughtful and interesting and sort of historically literate commentators there is. Wrote a piece the other day saying, look, don't get sort of suckered into this idea that the great progressive leap forward is coming. It would be nice if it was, but there are all sorts of pretty horrible undertones to this as well. You know, it's no accident Donald Trump calls it the Chinese virus, and it plays to his idea of walls and borders and being suspicious of your fellow human being and all the rest of it. So it, 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 it won't necessarily go one way or the other. Yeah. I, would like, I would like to think that at least we'll begin to talk about some of the things that we've mentioned in a very, very meaningful way we haven't been able to do up to now but there's no guarantee of success well, in this country it'll depend on the labor party i mean that's the you know some of me part of me wishes that wasn't the case and the, and the, the labor party didn't dominate the the left of politics to quite the extent that it does but yeah. it does and we're just gonna have to you know hope hope that it 
somehow rises to it. Well, I mean, it's just one of those things like, you know, you take people like um, Neil Lawson at Compass and Clive Lewis and, um, you know, they've, they've all, you know, I've always absolutely dialed into what they've got to say. And I've, I've chatted to both those guys for this show. And, and I think it's funny because when I have spoken to those guys previously, I have had a little bit of, I wouldn't say like um, negative feedback, but, you know, sort of a bit narky, you know, as in the idealism of it all. And, and, um, but actually, in reality, those are the things that we really do have to rapidly and dramatically embrace. You know, um, the, for the, obviously, for those of you who don't know Compass are, I think you should just go and check out what they're up to. But like, because I think I saw you guys actually at Glastonbury Festival um, on the left field stage, you and neil and that must have been the brexit year Clive. that was the referendum was, year it was the referendum year yeah. yeah it was and i i, I can't I, who was i talking to the other day um but, but anyway need ne- needles to say um it, it it was it was a fucking mental year but it, that was a year that really woke me up so i'm presuming that this is going to do stuff to people as well but i mean uh, yeah i mean the only thing is it's i feel it's sort of to be careful having these conversations in the sense that, you know, there are lots of people on the left of politics sort of jumping around saying, oh, this means this, and now we're going to get this, and yeah. now we've got to start talking about that. Yeah. And right now, my only thing is, well, I hope, I hope loads of people don't die. die. And, right. it looks like, yeah. and it looks like loads are going to die. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, and I hope these people who, who work in the NHS in this heroic way every day, I hope most of them or all of them get through it okay. Yeah. And that's that's almost like the extent of my horizons. But at the same mm. time, you know, I have to write a newspaper column every week. So these other thoughts about what this means, yeah, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it's wrong to have them. But I think one has to be sort of tentative about it. And I, you know, it's a bit early to be saying, oh, this is going to be our nineteen forty-five and all those things because yeah. because we just don't know. And now isn't the time, at least sort of publicly and loudly, to be having those conversations. But I think things will happen, and you know. I don't think it's inappropriate to sort of marvel at the fact that there's a conservative chancellor saying he's going to pay 80% of everyone's wages. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's remarkable, you know, or that the benefit system, at least for now, is going to be a lot less nasty than it has been. Yeah. Still a lot of nasty aspects to it. So those things mean something. Yeah. No, but who knows, who knows, you know, people, people's responses to things are weird. The world went through the first world war and, you know, we had homes for heroes and all the rest of it, but there was no great social revolution following that. I mean, arguably it took another 30, 40 years for that, for that to arrive. I don't know how many hundreds of Donald Trump could easily win the next presidential election in November easily. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I suppose the tone in the way in which you write is, is quite interesting. It's, it's all, it's very observant. You know, you're never, you don't ever, you know, necessarily predict the future. It's very, you know, muse. Um, trying to, I'm struggling with the word, really, but you. Well, I don't really like grinding axes. I mean, it's yeah. more. But that's why you know, people love anywhere but Westminster, because you do really just you just you ask the question, but it's not a, in a style that is, um, for want of a better expression, cunty. Do you know what I mean? You're not like, you know, <laughs> uh, you're not like. I hope not. <laughs> no, you probably have cunty moments, but um, no, no, it's but that's important. The, the, the job of a journalist, fundamentally, in my opinion, and I think this even applies to a columnist, or certainly the best ones, is really you're there to ask slightly awkward questions and to make people think. And very often to say to the more sort of doctrinaire, ideological people, well, it, it's quite complicated, isn't it? It's a bit more complicated than you're letting on here, you know? Yeah. 
And um, that's important. And it's important at a time right now with the skill, I suppose. And I'm never sure whether I get this quite right personally. The skill is to do that while not being like a contrarian. You know, when those yeah. there are certain writers who, who just kind of go against the grain for its own sake and all that. Yeah. I hope when, when you read most of what I write, it's pretty obvious reading it that I do believe passionately in greater equality and a public realm separate from the market and, um, you know, in a society which doesn't, isn't, doesn't run on the same sort of horrible bigotry that you hear from people like Donald Trump yeah. and all the rest of it. That's there. You know, it's not like I haven't got very deeply held values. Mm. But if you're a journalist, your job is to go out and ask questions. It's not, I'm not a politician. That's yeah. not my gig. Well, yeah, I mean... I, I I think that the best journalists for me anyway kind of replicate my favourite authors like you know um, the, I, I mean I, I don't read a lot of John Grisham but I always sort of stepped I haven't read any because he, he, <laughs> he's great he's like he's I don't read him a lot at all but Steinbeck again really great but you wouldn't you know you read The Grapes of Wrath yeah that's a good example yeah, that's a good can, example anyone can fucking read that book anyone and it, but you sort of know where he's coming from yeah. but he's not hitting you over the head with it yeah. I mean that's the point and like Orwell similarly I mean no one you know no no one would doubt, or some would, but I wouldn't doubt the sort of fundamental decency and and very left of centre nature of Orwell's essential convictions. But he has this very sort of sceptical, doubting, very sort of English, I would argue, sensibility, you know, and that 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 is very very attractive, and it and it it's what I would say it's what writers should do, you know. I don't if people want to speechify, they should make speeches. It's not what I want to read when I've got the newspaper or I'm holding a book in my hand. Yeah. Did you enjoy my com- you, me comparing you to um, John Steinbeck then? I, uh, well, <laughs> I, again, I'm not very. I've read The Grapes of Wrath when I was at school. It's fucking amazing. I went to Cannery Row once in Monterey, oh, really? California. Oh, well, there you yeah. go. I I picked that up. But I I I only got into reading when I was about 27, and um, um, I picked up. Uh, a second-hand, fifth-hand copy of um, Grapes of Wrath at a train station on my way to work. I used to work for Green Thumb, a lawn treatment company, and it was in the dead of winter, and I was in this van. I was so depressed, I can't even put into words how depressed I was at that time in my life. And this book just ignited, like, a fucking horizon in me. I just couldn't even believe it, how words could be that effective. And it felt like, you know, like you're like coming... Good period. It's a good period in American literature. Yeah. But look, I'll, 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 we'll, we'll cut it off now, man, because you've given me 45 minutes. So that's really sweet. It's lovely to talk to you. I'm sorry it took me so long to come around to doing this. Mate, it's fine. It's fine. You're right, it's so to, get, to, get from quote, to get from quote of via <laughs> Brexit to COVID-19, we've obviously done all right. We've done all right. And if, yeah, if I can bend your ear another time, that would be absolutely amazing. Cause... Yeah, of course. That's absolutely fine. I'm going to go downstairs and play Living on an Island now, which is about tax exile, that song. Is it? Is it? Yeah, and there's a verse oh. about his accountant in it. There's no poetic, because it's a quo, right? There's no poetic veil or metaphor or symbolism in it at all. <laughs> yeah. There's a line that says, Huey got a, Cruxy got a real nice place. No, Huey got a real nice place. Yeah. Cruxy going to be, be there, there soon. soon yeah. And one of them is their accountant. I mean, it's, oh. it's absolutely unveiled. It just, it just says, later on today, my accountant's coming around. <laughs> That's it. I said, I said, I remember saying to him, that's the other thing. I remember saying to Rick Parfit in this interview, that's a great metaphor, isn't it, for the essential loneliness of the pop star life, living on an island. He went, no, I was living on Jersey. I was living on an island. That's it. <laughs> and he looked at me like, what are you talking about? Well, f- I, was, it yeah. was, I was living on an island. That's it. What are you talking about, mate? Yeah. Get past the red wine. Oh, down, down, deeper and down. Oh, some, right. Uh, yes, I'm going to go and play some Quo downstairs. Thank mate, you for doing that, William. That's lovely of you. Play it loud and play it proud. 
And Very good. Yeah, hopefully I'll speak to you soon, mate. You take Let me know when this is coming out. I will All do. Right? I will do. Okay. Take care, mate. See you, Be mate. Safe. See you soon. Bye Cheers. Bye.